0: the Guardian hello assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic we apologize for the delay in service we would have been here sooner had it not been for Sharia gate coming up in this month's edition to beat the winter blues it's all about Sharia and science for good measure we've thrown in some turkey as well We'll be hearing from Ehsan Masood, Guardian Science writer Ian Sample, our Environment Editor John Vidal and Professor Valentine QC. In the studio we have human rights lawyer Abdurrahman Jafar. Hello, Abdurrahman.
1: Hiya, and Waalaikum alaikum.
0: Wa alaikum wasalaam. Now what do you like the best about Sharia? Huh? What's your favourite? I I think
1: that's the thing. I don't really think about it. I'm British. I live in England. I don't really think that we should have. uh, You know, it doesn't come to my mind. It's not part of my concern. But I do understand that there's a lot of people out there who wish to get married or if they divorce, they want to do it in Are accordance with the laws. Are married or divorced, Well, I did marry yeah. and I married uh, simply at registry. My own way of thinking, mm. uh, my interpretation of Islam is that if it's in accordance with the national laws yeah. and it complies with the minimum, yeah. in other words, two witnesses, and yeah. I had two witnesses, then that's it. That's an Islamic marriage as well. So, you know. It's about frills, and many people like that. For many people, it's very important. Let's not forget that these kind of arbitrary institutions are a long-running, standing tradition of the UK. We've got the Beth Din, which are Jewish courts that have been running for the past 100 years, which do exactly this, uh, incorporated into the legal system.
0: And that's the end of the show. (laughs) Does this studio arrangement constitute some kind of corporal punishment? What? There was a story that came out of Saudi about this woman who was arrested because she was in a bit of Starbucks... With a man who wasn't related to her by blood or marriage.
1: Oh, no. Look, Saudi Arabia, by even the most practising Muslims in the UK, yeah. would not constitute what a Sharia-run government looks like or feels like. I think the Saudi government is called a state within a state. They've got to maintain a very corrupt and evil regime by the appearance of being Islamic. And so they go overboard on these really stupid things like banning Valentine's Day, you know, stopping women from driving, things that are completely incomprehensible to normal human beings but I don't know whether it's to keep people in fear or whatever but it's very important for them to maintain this kind of above Islamic perception kind uh, of
0: an uber Islam
1: I don't know what Islam it is but not many people relate with it And I, I'm, be are they giving
0: f- Sharia a bad name do you reckon
1: yeah for sure but the British press do a pretty good (laughs) job itself
0: after a a it's like you're some kind of mystic or psychic like I said we were supposed to record the show on the 7th of February in fact you even turned up in reception yeah (laughs) so I'm really sorry Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury had different ideas
2: The Archbishop should tend to his own flock, said the Daily Telegraph. The Mirror, unholy row. The Daily Star, I can't really say that. And the Sun said, Arch Enemy. Bash the Bishop.
0: Now what nobody paid much attention to was that Rowan Williams was kicking off a six-part series of discussions on Islam and English law. They've been organised between the School of Oriental and African Studies and the Temple Church, which celebrates its 400th anniversary. I spoke to Professor Ballantyne q c who's a barrister at Searle Court in Lincoln's Inn, about his discussion on Sharia and finance.
3: I'm supposed to be an expert on Arabic laws. Why is this lecture relevant in
0: today's climate?
3: Oh, because of the topicality of Islam as a subject, very unfortunately, I think. Islam is increasingly being presented as some kind of world enemy, which, of course, is ridiculous.
0: Do people understand what Sharia law really is?
3: No, I don't think so for a minute. It's a very complicated subject, and they haven't studied it.
0: Now, you spent a long time living and working in the Gulf states. How was Sharia law practised over there?
3: Decreasingly, because increasingly they have all promulgated commercial codes, which evade the Sharia, particularly in the matter of interest on money and banking. As an exception to the the other Gulf states, in Saudi Arabia, the Sharia is constitutionally the law, so that any law which is against Sharia, if challenged, would not be applied by a court in Saudi Arabia.
0: Can Islamic law coincide with English law or cohabit with English law?
3: Well, that's a difficult question because, of course, it is not part of English law, but, of course, it can be applied in an English court. And there are many common legal precepts. For example, sanctity of contract is a very strong precept in Sharia law. Damages for breach of contract and for the doing of harm is another point where they coincide. But, of course, there are also differences.
0: What are these differences?
3: Now you've got me onto a subject which I talk about for about a year. <laughs> but as far as contract's concerned, and that's really my field, commercial contract, freedom of contract, and achieving contractual justice, the trammels in Sharia are are somewhat different.
0: And of course, one of the biggest differences is Sharia law regarding money.
3: Yes, the big burning difference is indeed Sharia law regarding money, because the vast majority of uh, fiqh, the jurisprudential opinion at Sharia, is that interest on money is absolutely forbidden. Whereas you've got a world system, of course, at the moment, conventionally, which is entirely based on it. And our lives are largely dictated by people who are adjusting interest
4: rates.
0: (laughs) Why does there need to be a sensible discussion about Sharia law?
3: Because of its topicality. And as we we go back to square one, don't we? That, I mean, Islam is being propelled into such a very regrettably inimical position in the world that the the more clarification we have of all these issues, the better. And, And quickly.
0: Professor Ballantyne is one of many learned friends involved with these discussions. Another one is being chaired by Sir James Craig, who is the ambassador to Saudi Arabia between 1979 and 1984. The introduction will be from Dr Lynn Welchman, head of the law school at SOAS. And the speakers will be Professor Abdullah Annaim from Emory University and the ubiquitous Tariq Ramadan. In the studio we have Abdulrahman Jafar. What do you think about having very high level, very intellectual and intensely legal discussions about such a sensitive subject.
1: Well, I mean, we've had books about these subjects for a long, long time. You you can find libraries of books by Western intellectuals on Sharia. I think it's just the climate and the individual who made the speech. What he actually said was actually very uncontroversial. He made it very clear that we're not talking about going beyond criminal codes in the UK, you know, nothing to do with... He completely disavowed the corporal punishment system in Sharia. uh, But he was simply talking about those aspects of Sharia which could be given some form of recognition like marriage, like divorce, like banking, for instance, which is, you know, a multi-million pound industry in the UK, Sharia-compliant banking. We are earning. It's in the public interest Mm. to do all of this.
0: Well, I mean, arrangements have already been made to accommodate Sharia-compliant mortgages and investments and baby bonds. But the difference there is that at the end of the day... There's money to be made, whereas if you just go around recognising marriages and divorces, nobody really gains apart from Muslims, so...
1: Well, I mean, there's a public interest in ensuring all citizens, as long as it doesn't contravene the legal codes in Mm. the UK, are accommodated properly. We've been doing this with Jews. Why not for Muslims?
0: Because Muslims are bad?
1: Oh, yeah, I forgot.
0: (laughs) Now, how can Muslims educate people about what Sharia means? I mean, it's all very well as Rowan Williams did, addressing an audience full of lawyers. But what about your bog-standard citizen on the street?
1: Yeah, I mean, Sharia, let's be clear, it's not a word that was ever used by the Prophet Muhammad, nor during his generation. It's a word that was coined afterwards. It basically means a road to a water well. So anything which...
0: That sounds really nice. It makes it sound really benign and...
1: Yes, uh, there are many Islamic scholars who say the whole purpose and point of Sharia is to ensure the public good. There's a whole school of thought which says it's very rational. And actually, whatever is in the Quran, it could only deal with a tiny minority of everyday affairs. Mm. The vast majority of issues which require laws, you know, road, main, everything that we face as human society. A very small amount of that would actually be dealt with within the Quran or the Hadith.
0: Now you look like a clever kind of chap. I've got a quiz for you. What is the basis for Sharia?
1: Well, it would be primarily the Quran.
0: And secondly? The Hadith. Which leads us seamlessly on to our next item. In a little known but potentially huge development, the Turks have decided to rewrite Islam by getting rid of the bits they don't like or don't believe to be true. On the line from Brussels, we have our Europe editor and Turkey expert, Ian Trainer. Ian, what are the Turks up to?
5: Well, it's been a fairly obscure project that they've been running for at least two or three years, sponsored by the mildly Islamic government of Prime Minister Erdogan. But it seems that the so-called Dayanit, which is the supreme religious authority in Turkey, has been rather furtively commissioning a bunch of Islamic theologians to both re-examine the Quran itself and to uh, reinterpret the collection of thousands of sayings and comments that are known as the Hadith, which forms a basis for Sharia law.
0: Now, you use the word furtively there. When we were doing our research on this, project. We couldn't find any reference to it on official websites and the only information out there seemed to be something that had been written in the Washington Post in 2006. It's obviously understandable that when you're rewriting Islam you'd want to keep it under wraps.
5: Well, it's obviously clearly very delicate and very sensitive for a variety of reasons, both historical and current, given the upheaval in the Islamic world and also the tensions between the West and the Islamic world, but also for historical reasons because of the role of Turkey and Ottoman Empire in the Middle East and the kind of divisions over Islam, let's say, between mainstream Arabic world and the Turkic world. So there's bound to be very controversial when it comes out. And B, it would not be surprising if the Turkish revisionism was attacked by more orthodox, fundamentalist Islamic countries in the Arab world, such as Saudi Arabia. The whole project is, however, being driven forward by a bunch of young reformists and rather iconoclastic, one might say, theologians based at Ankara University. And as I understand it, many of them were educated in the West, several of them in Britain at Exeter University, it seems. There's another very prominent member at the Turkish Embassy in Washington, for example, another at uh, a Protestant uh, theological faculty in Frankfurt. So clearly, uh, these young Turks, so to speak, are well versed in Western religious and philosophical disciplines.
0: Is Turkey just playing politics with Islam?
5: In current context, it would be difficult to say that there is nothing political about this, given the hugely important projects that are being undertaken by the Erdogan government in Turkey. Turkey itself is absolutely convulsed by disputes and conflicts between secularism, which is a constitutional basis of modern Turkey from the 1920s onwards, and the rise of this modernizing, reforming party of the prime minister, which has its roots in Islamic activism.
0: Ian, thank you very much for speaking to us. Abdurrahman Jafar. Is this a legitimate exercise? Can anyone do this? Should well, we, I have a go?
1: Well, we don't know what the exercise is, do we? What we know is something from the Washington Post in 2006. It's very important to relook at the Hadith, to understand what it means, understand its context, to go through the sources. There's nothing cast in stone and uh, I think it's fundamental to bring out the meaning of what was happening in the Prophet's life. And to do that, you've got to go through a process of what these guys are up to.
0: I mean, it's not just a case of them sort of removing the misogyny or the sexism from it or the bits that they don't feel are relevant to their particular society. I also understand that they're embarking on an authentication and detection exercise. You yeah. know, they're looking at the content, but they're also looking at the chain of transmission to see how accurate... Absolutely. It is.
1: Absolutely. And I think a natural relooking at Mm. the Hadith would remove the misogyny anyway. Because when you look at specific events, Mm. for instance, the verses in the Quran about being able to hit your wife if she doesn't do, you know. If you look at the historical context when that was revealed, the Prophet forbade it completely. Mm. And it was only after certain problems occurred. And so there are many people who say, well, look, that's... Time context; it's not a universal Mm. uh, permission, and it was bound under certain context, under certain circumstance. But your universal one goes Mm. back. So you know there is a need to look at what the objective of these laws and these sayings and the actions of the prophet were. Do you think
0: anyone will take it seriously?
1: Oh, I think so. Yeah,
0: it's a domestic document. What we know is, and we have this from a very good source. It for the Turks by the Turks, they don't expect anyone to adopt it, so they don't see it going down too well in Saudi, but they're not too bothered because it's not for the Saudis. And so it's something that suits that moment in time and their political and social climate. But also, you know, I have spoken to some conservative people, conservative Mm. with a small c... And they said that it will carry absolutely no weight because it's done by the Turks and they're secular anyway.
1: Well, it's not going to carry weight in that you have to read it and you have to adopt it. But I think Muslims throughout the world, and there's a huge number of Muslims, don't forget, disproportionate number of Muslims who are seriously engaged in their religion mm. and trying to understand it. Yeah. Uh, Almost every Muslim I know flicks through the Hadith, you know, has a knowledge of the Quran. So they're very, very interested. And I think many Muslims in trying to understand the Hadith Mm. would voluntarily want to understand what these chaps are up to. Uh, So I think uh, while states wouldn't, whilst a lot of the ulama may have a knee jerk reaction against it. If it makes sense, and if it's, you know, rigorous in its research, mm. why would it be rejected?
4: Mm.
0: Well, I mean, it's interesting that it's Turkey doing this and not, say, Pakistan.
1: Well, what's really interesting is that this is coming from what the West calls Islamism. Yeah. You know, what it's been saying is the biggest threat to the universe. And is But this political Islam, this Islam which seeks to be comprehensive, is actually at the forefront of mm. reform modernizing all the things that you know you want someone like Irshad Manji to have done but she failed miserably.
0: You're saying that is this part of an Islamic reformation?
1: I think it's a beginning I think many Muslims understand that we're on the brink of something uh, change has always happened in the Muslim world unfortunately over the past few hundred years it's hmm. been a bit stagnant and I think we've always thought at least my generation we're on the precipice of some. Some, you Something know, big. Re- return back <laughs> to the past where, where Islam was a world of discovery, of openness, of etc. After Rahman et you've done
0: it again. It's like you've been reading my mind or at least oh, reading my script. Yeah. It's fine, oh, it's good. It's all about the science, hundreds of years ago. You know, modernizing Islam is a bit yeah. like trying to turn around an ocean liner and gale exactly. force winds, but Absolutely. a couple of hundred years ago, we were there, man. We were at the cutting edge of but, science and advancement. Yeah. But where are we now? Absolutely yeah. nowhere. And believe it or not, there is more to Muslim science than nuclear proliferation.
6: My name is Hassan Masood and I'm a writer and a journalist.
0: Essan, there was a report in Nature magazine last year that was fairly critical about Muslim countries and scientific development. And the Organisation of Islamic Countries also published a similar report. For those people who haven't had the pleasure of reading these excellent documents, can you just tell us what was in both?
6: Well, first of all, they can go to www.nature.com, and then they can find out everything. the Nature Report. In very, very brief summary, he said that the state of scientific research, that's the production of new things, biotechnology, genetics, nuclear technology, all of those things, wonderful and exciting, is lower than some of the poorest countries in the world.
0: That's quite surprising because a lot of the countries in the Middle East are oil-rich,
6: They are, yes. We're talking about some of the countries like the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, all glass buildings, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, some of the really big spenders where standards are living in more than the UK. And even in those countries, what you find is that the spending on science, the numbers of universities, the numbers of science teachers, all of the geek nerd things which make living in the West such a fun thing, they are a lot fewer than they should be.
0: Why do they care so little about science when they care so much about, oh, I don't know, glass buildings and weapons?
6: Well, the funny thing is that glass buildings and weapons need scientists, but they can buy them from people like you and me and they don't develop them indigenously. That's the problem.
0: Why should Muslim countries care about developing science and technology indigenously?
6: I think all countries should care about developing science and technology and art and literature. It says nothing worse than a moribund, boring society.
0: Now, has this attitude got anything to do with secular governments uh, being replaced by more religious authorities, let's say?
6: Quite the contrary. Here's the really interesting thing. So in countries where there is more religion, like Iran, you find that spending on science is a lot more. The numbers of libraries is a lot more. The number of science teachers, scientists, research and development, published papers, it's really a lot more. Turkey, which is very secular, is also a lot more. So it's not really a function of faith so much. as just spending more money and just organizing it very well.
0: So the Nature report was partly critical but also partly optimistic as well. What did the OIC report say?
6: Well, it more or less mirrored what the Nature report said. It looked at a lot of things. It said, for example, the main, the big finding was that the amount of a nation's national income spent on science and education is around 3%. In the OIC states it's less than 0.3%, so it is really, really low. Among the optimistic things is that the curve is on its way up and one of the countries leading it is Saudi Arabia, especially after the death of King Fahad. King Abdullah is much more interested in these things, and he's building a brand-gleaming new glass university called the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. I think your newspaper might even have published a full-page ad.
0: What other good news is there on the horizon?
6: Uh, The Sheikh of the United Arab Emirates has recently announced a $10 billion fund to invest in research, development, books, film, music, art, literature, all the exciting things.
0: And on your piece of paper next to you, you've scribbled down African Union and Malaysia. Tell us about those places.
6: Well, the African Union is the intergovernmental body of all the African states, and it is getting a lot more serious about R&D and science technology, particularly as some of the countries are some of the poorest in the world. And so it too is also a lot keener on just doing the things that you need to develop your science, to build universities, build better schools, colleges, get good trained teachers. Malaysia is interested in space. Quite why... I'm not quite sure, but then Malaysia also has something called the Muslim shower, which I'll leave your, your, your <laughs> readers and your viewers to figure out what that is. So some scientist or a minister announced the other day that uh, they would quite like young children to go out into space at some point, point. I hope they meant when those children grow up and not when they're actually still children.
0: Islam has quite a rich history of being scientifically advanced and contributing to progress in science, so... People might be a little surprised to hear that they're slacking in the 21st century.
6: They probably will be very surprised. The Islamic advanced science was a long time ago now. I think it probably ended in around the 15th or 16th century, so it's been quite a while. The big reason, in my very humble and not too arrogant opinion, was colonization. I think when the European colonial powers stripped away people's own methods of learning, then it kind of set them back just a wee bit.
0: So we're blaming white people then? <laughs> We put Essan's views to uh, Guardian science writer Ian Sample and our fabulous environment editor John Vidal.
7: The one thing about the positive side of Essan's report there was that a lot of these countries can only do better. So, yes, there's good news on the horizon, but that's often because they've been so so bad in the past. And what I mean by so bad is not particularly how poor their science is, but how little they invest in it. A lot of these countries have been investing 10%, a tenth of what most developed countries will be investing in science. Even countries like Saudi Arabia have only recently decided that they will start putting money into science. Iran is above those. It probably puts in three times as much money as Saudi, as GDP. But, um, again, Iran is still probably a quarter of where the other countries are They've got an awful long way to go and one of the trickiest things to them is to be a real player in science, you need to be international and you need to be able to attract people from the States, from Japan and from a lot of the really leading countries. And if you have, um, by one way or another, managed to be isolated, you won't attract the big brains and you won't have a brain drain because the brains probably won't be there in the first place.
0: Are science and religion compatible?
7: Well, they, they coexist. I think um, compatible, it, it depends what you mean by compatible, I think. I mean... You can get into the argument about faith being diametrically opposed to the scientific method, but I I don't think, apart from that, there are an enormous number of scientists who are religious. I don't know if how big that sort of compatibility issue uh, needs to be, really, in day-to-day living, really.
0: John, let me come to you. You've been getting very excited about something called creation care.
7: Well, it's not that I'm getting
2: excited. I think it's more that most of the world's religions are picking up this concept. Actually, it's fantastically old and very dull. It's basically the old (laughs) stewardship idea, which goes back thousands of years, is that you look after the Earth and then it will provide for you. But in the last five years or more... We have begun to see every world religion, and that ranges from the Buddhists and the Taoists and the Jains and the Baha'is, and they're all looking back to their roots and they're seeing, well, actually, we do have quite a big environmental responsibility and where it really came to the fore was in America where the evangelicals four out of five evangelicals were found to support Mr Bush and they have started putting a lot of pressure on Bush to change his policies and this is what is now whizzing around the world creation care is the big buzzword for how religion very often related to the right wing can actually be environmentally conscious without don't have to mention the word environment at all
0: now a couple of weeks ago there was a survey out where some environmental bigwigs decided how people could reverse the effects of climate change, and the second biggest contribution they thought was by getting faith leaders involved.
2: Yeah, no, it's 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 it fascinating. Is that take the Orthodox Church? There's 300 million Christians who are members of this church, and you've got the guy in charge of it is the Bishop of Constantinople. And he is a greenie, I'm mean, as simple as that. And he is exhorting all his followers, all 300 million of them, be green. Now, his influence on his community is pretty large, but he's influencing deeply the present Pope, and the Pope has got green tendencies himself, and has thought that perhaps in a couple of years' time, if he hangs on, we might even get an environmental uh, encyclical, Popemobile. a Popemobile encyclical. <laughs> Sorry, a
0: hybrid yeah. Pope mobile. Anyway,
2: never. No, the point is, religions now control something like at least one third of all the world's investments, at least a fifth of all the world's land. I mean, we're talking very, very large numbers. Now, you get these guys aboard and then you have got an enormous... I mean, the, the American cardinal who runs the Vatican Science Department is very, very keen that GM crops should be blessed by the Pope. Now, if the Pope were to do this, this mm. would whiz round the Philippines, Brazil, all the Catholic countries, and suddenly... All these people who have been saying, no, we don't want them, we don't need the GM crops, they would have to rethink their things. So there's an almighty battle
7: going on.
0: Ian, you're nodding.
7: Well, no, I, I was just thinking how countries do a lot of science to make money. And it's one of the few things you can stick money into that you're pretty much guaranteed a return on.
0: Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. at this point, I was going to bring in Osama Hassan, who's a scientist, and he's also the new director of City Circle, but he got stuck in a meeting, and he's somewhere in Richmond. So I'm going to have to throw this science question over to Abdurrahman Jafar. There are loads of Muslim geeks out there. There are. If marriage websites are anything to go by anyway. But it's not really translating into anything, is it? I mean, inventions and discoveries and...
1: Countries, no. But if you go to NASA, a huge number of their employees are actually Middle Eastern. Muslims. You it, know why that is, don't you? Oh, 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 no, no, no. Rockets? Space technology? Oh, come on. The reality is Muslim foreign students, yeah. over 50% of those don't return back to their countries. They stay on in Western yeah. countries because they feel confident developing their research. And look at the Muslim world's most industrialised nation, which is Egypt. Yes. You know, it's, it's a horrible, corrupt... You wouldn't have confidence there. It's been completely mismanaged, but it's got the highest number of PhDs in the world per capita. Yeah, wow. So I think a lot of it is to do with politics, the way we're geopolitically so redundant at this moment in time. It's fascinating that Iran is so forthright and Malaysia and Turkey, countries where the populace are actually quite religious. I think if you look back at Islamic history, if you compare that to the West, in the West where you've seen the rise of, religion you see a decrease in rationality and a decrease in science it's the converse in Ah. the Muslim world where you see a rise in religion you see a rise in rationality and science etc etc the Islamic world didn't just contribute to science it invented the scientific method and if you go to historians of science Mm. they'll confirm that the whole idea of observation quantification Mm. recording etc that was actually something invented. And a lot of the things that we take for granted as modernity today, you know, the street lamps, the soaps, the public hospitals, the libraries, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera universities, they're all Muslim. They're mm. all inventions within the Islamic world. Within the Muslim world, we have tremendous capacity. Yes. And I think the same problems faced the Christian world before. They put man as centric. Mm. Yeah, Copernicus and Galileo had problems with their ideas because the church was saying, no, the human planet is the center of all the universe. And, and that prevented progress. Mm. And we have a similar problem with science today in that it's only centered around benefiting or, or furthering human consumption, not looking at the wider Issues and I think what the last speaker was saying in that interview creation, of, care, and creation yeah. care and stewardship and science. I hope that in the future that's something that the Muslim world could contribute very seriously to.
0: So, do governments need to do more than to lure their brainy citizens back?
1: Yeah, science <laughs> requires an openness and tolerance and a certain degree of confidence. And I think whereas the Western democracy has been brilliant in harnessing this human spirit. I think it's important to recognise, like in Dubai, we're seeing, apart from the glass buildings, there is a renaissance of the human spirit. And so there is this spreading of a wider human spirit. I think liberal democracy still provides the best platform, but it's important to recognise that there are other ways in which openness Mm. and scientific spirit is being spread.
0: Abdurrahman Jafar, it's been a pleasure having you in our studio. You could say thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, thank, thank you, you for thank inviting you. me. Thank
1: you for inviting me. It was an uh, absolute <laughs> honour and privilege. No, stop. <laughs> stop. stop.
0: Stop. Thank you. Um, um, but thank you for um, talking about so many subjects. <laughs> okay, we could continue this loving, but uh, we are now going to do a telephone interview with Dr. Osama Hassan, the new director at City Circle, everyone's favourite group of chin-stroking Muslim intellectuals. Hello. Hello, Salam alaykum, As- Is that Osama Hassan?
4: Yes. Again. Have you
0: made it back to your office?
4: Yes, I'm in an office now. Yep.
0: What in your office or just anybody's?
4: <laughs> no, this <laughs> is somebody else's office, but never mind. Oh, after.
0: okay. Yeah. Osama, what are your plans for this August body?
4: We're going to have a lot of fun this year. Basically, I'm going to continue to invite really interesting guests and speakers: professors, intellectuals, activists, politicians. Well, uh, this year already we've had a uh, packed-out session on the politics of Pakistan, we've had the ex-bishop of Jerusalem, we've had Peter Saunders, a leading Muslim photographer, etc. We're going to continue with a wide mix of interesting and varied events.
0: So it's going to be more of the same, so you'll have some intensely sort of like spiritual debates and then you'll have things that are about politics. Something I hear a lot of is that it's either one thing or another and there's nothing really for people who are not terribly religious and not
4: terribly political. Well, that's something we are going to look at. We're going to try to have a greater variety, in fact. Since I'm a scientist, City Circle uh, are very keen for me to introduce more science-based stuff. I haven't had the chance to do that yet. But we're going to to try to go for difficult situation or uh, issues like the evolution debate. I mean, that's a big one within Muslim Circle. I'm very keen to to have a look at that. And then there's the more mundane one of moon sighting, which uh, which is actually problem solved, but most Muslims don't know about it, so we're still in a terrible mess. We don't even know when Ramadan or Eid should begin and end. So we're it to is. I mean, like that's that.
0: basically when people start Ramadan at different times and then end it at different times. And so you have people celebrating Eid on different days in the same yeah, country.
4: Th- that's right, because unfortunately, despite all the immense scientific advances, Muslims can't agree on when the new crescent moon is visible. So that's a more mundane one, but we, we hope to tackle that also. And then there is Islamism within the Muslim community, because we're committed to an authentic, organic British Islam, if you like, or an Islam which reflects and is relevant to British society. It it has to be done because there's not enough good debate in Muslim circles, although that's developing now, but we're we're hoping to keep that at the high level.
0: Osama, thank you so much for joining us on the line, and inshallah, we will have you in person in the studio for our next show. Is that a deal or no deal? Deal. Yay! (laughs) Inshallah, God willing. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Matt Hayward and presented by me, Viazat Butt. God willing and Archbishops notwithstanding we should be back with you in March
2: for more great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio